Hi, I'm Dennis Hester, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist Church Watauga, and we are grateful that you have tuned in to listen to these messages, either through our podcast or on our website. And as you listen to these, our prayer is that you would hear the Lord speak to you from His Holy Word. If you're interested in learning more about the church, you can get on our website at fbcwatauga.org. From there, there's a place where you can plan a visit, you can learn more about our beliefs. You can also request prayer through the prayer request page. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. The most important thing that I'd communicate to you is as you listen to God's Word, that you find a place to get plugged into a local congregation, whether it's here at First Baptist or another local church where you live. If you'd like information or would like us to help you find a church home, uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. And you can contact us through our Facebook page. So God bless you as you listen to His Word, and may the Lord encourage you in your walk. Well, good morning. For the record, I want you to know that I was not in the room when the service started five minutes early. Uh, my wife, however, was. I think she snuck over there and changed the countdown timer and confused even Matthew uh, by starting a little bit early. Uh, in any case, as Kevin mentioned, uh, Susan and I are going to be taking a trip over the next week and going and finding a cool spot up in the mountains of Wyoming. And so we covet your prayers for us as we get away for a few days and uh, just look forward to a little bit of uh, time to relax. Today's message comes from one verse in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, 12, so you can begin to turn there if you wish. Uh, Jerry Clower tells a story about a, a tenant county fair where there were these two old ranchers who had this ongoing argument over a cow. Uh, who owned that cow? Apparently, there was uh, some discussion over it. The cow had never been branded. It had been in different pastures. And this had gone on for years. And uh, Jerry thought, you know, I can't believe they are still arguing over this cow. And he said, so I had a cousin there who was a lawyer. And he said, I'm just going to get that, this lawyer over here. We're just going to settle this thing between these two ranchers and this cow right now. So he introduces the lawyer to him and he steps back and begins to watch and he says he notices that lawyer go over and he talked to one farmer or one rancher for a little bit. Then he turned, he talked to this one for a little bit and he turned back and talked to this one. Then he'd go back and talk to that one. He went back and forth four or five times and after a few moments, the two ranchers shook hands and the lawyer walked off with a cow. Now there's a couple truths that we can learn from that story. First of all, if you have two brothers, especially brothers in Christ, who get into an, uh, an argument about something and end up going before a lawyer, there's usually only going to be one winner. <laughs> it's going to be the lawyer. The second thing that comes out of that story that I was struck with, it's, it's always just reminded me, is that there was a day when a handshake would be your contract and you can make an agreement over it. And we have long since lost that day. I've told this story here before. I remember uh, years ago when I was pastoring at First Baptist May, we were getting ready to build our first building, and, and here we're a little church and a little bank in the community, People State Bank in Rising Star, Texas, was uh, going to do the loan for us for the building note so that we'd have money for the construction. And, and uh, I remember our, our trustees, who were three deacons, and went, uh, godly men who went, and they they, they met with this banker, and I went with them, and they, they sat down around the table, and they're signing just like a mortgage document. They're going over all the loan documents, and the banker would say, well, this, this paper is about this, and this paper is about this, and this paper, and they're just signing it as they go. And they get down to the last sheet of paper, and he said, now this paper is a, a waiver over all verbal agreements. 
Essentially what it means is anything that I've told you verbally doesn't matter. It's only what's in ink on these papers. And I thought, how have we come to this place? Not only do we have to sign the contracts, but we have to sign a piece of paper saying that anything that you've told me doesn't matter because your word is meaningless. But that's where we are in our world. That's where we are in our culture. It's only what's written. It's only what is signed. It's only what's in ink that matters. I grew up in a time, and many of you did, and in fact, many of you still, even today, have grown up in a family where your dad told you that your word is your bond. Your word has meaning. So we're not just talking about something from ancient history. It's a, it's a cultural issue. When you say yes, it should mean yes. When you say no, it should mean no. You shouldn't have to say, I really, really promise. Or as Susan was talking about when, when I was talking to her about the sermon yesterday, I pinky swear. And if you pinky swear, that, that makes your word more binding. Why? Our word should have meaning. And that's what Jesus said. That's what James, his brother, I believe, remembers the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 when he writes these words in James chapter 5, verse 12. James writes, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Now, that word that's translated judgment there at the end of verse 12 is actually, it's two words, or under judgment are two words, hupa chrysis. Now, those, those two Greek words, when they're put together, have a different meaning, a slightly different meaning. Uh, hupocrites, or hupocrisis, in one word, means hypocrite. And so you'll see an alternate translation. If you have the CSB uh, that, that, that I'm using on the electronic version, you'll see a little notation there. If you look on it, it'll say, could be fall into hypocrisy. And so the meaning of this text uh, has kind of two shades of meaning. Now, that, that really doesn't change things. And, and I'll just note, uh, when the original Greek uh, manuscripts were written, Greek originally was written on papyrus, or the, or the Bible was written on papyrus with, in unicles, which means they were all capital letters and there were no spaces between most of the words. And so no one really knows for sure if hupocrisis here was all one word or two words. By context, most of the scholars translate it this way so that you won't fall under judgment. But it could also carry that meaning of fall into hypocrisy. It's really kind of, it doesn't matter a whole lot for us because none of us want to fall under God's judgment and none of us want to be the hypocrite. And so it's not that it carries that much weight, but it does give us a shade of meaning that I think is important to explore in the message today. And so we'll do that. The first thing that I want us to look at here is this issue that your words matter. In fact, I thought about it in uh, titling this message, uh, How to Live a Life of Integrity, but I already preached a sermon entitled that from James back on May the 26th with that same title. But this comes with a different focus. This is a focus on our words. And so I titled it, Make Sure Your Words Matter. And there's some ways that we can do that that are important here. And and in the text, he tells us, don't swear by heaven or or, or earth or with an oath. Ultimately, what Jesus was communicating and what James is reminding us of is our words have meaning and they ought to matter. 
But there's some things that we do with language and there's some ways that we communicate that cause our words to lose their meaning. And I just want to give you some of those. And actually, this is not a comprehensive list. I think there could be more. But all of these, I think, are, are rooted in Scripture as well. The first one is this, foul language. When you use foul language, it indicates a laziness with the language. It, it, you haven't taken the time to develop a good argument, and so you just use curse words to try to make your point. In fact, most people, when they hear someone using especially curse words often, they, they tend to lower their esteem level of that person. That person will lose a level of, of sense of maturity or leadership in their mind because we are judged by our vocabulary. You're judged by the words that you say. And one of the good questions that you can ask yourself is, would I use those words in front of God? Now, my mom used to say, would you use those words in front of your grandma? <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't do that either. Uh, grandma would slap me into the other room for using some of those words. <clears throat> but when we use foul language, we demean our words. Words begin to, our, our arguments begin to lose their meaning. Second, this one is, is common, and sometimes it, it comes out of our personalities. It's overuse of hyperbole. If you're someone who continually, you'll say something like this. I've told you a thousand times. If somebody tells me that, I'll look at them and say, no, you have not. You have not told me anything a thousand times. And, and if they've been counting, I want proof, right? When we continually use hyperbole, we use words like, you always do such and such. No, I don't always do that. Sometimes I eat, Right? Or you never say this. You never say you love me. You get an argument with your spouse with that. That's not true. I said it the day that we got married. You ought to remember it from then, right? The bottom line is we need to be careful with the use of hyperbole or, or over-exaggeration because if we continually do that, sometimes we'll use hyperbole to make a point. But if you continually use hyperbole, then your words lose meaning, they no longer are meaningful because then if I don't really, really, really say it, then I don't really, really, really mean it, right? And so we can temper our speech by saying what we mean and meaning what we say. Make your words matter. We can temper our speech by our volume, okay? If you feel like that you have to always yell to make your point, then you're probably not saying something that has much substance in it. Now, this goes for what we see on TV right now with the riots. I mean, how many times have you seen somebody in the face of a police officer just yelling at them and berating them? If, if you feel like you have to, to yell, then you probably are not making a good point. I had a preaching professor say <clears throat> that oftentimes if preachers are getting really, really loud and banging on the pulpit really, really hard, it's probably because their point's weak, and so they just got to stir up a lot of wind because there's not a lot of substance in what they have to say. I pray that I never get to that point. But, but it's true that oftentimes we feel like if our point isn't strong enough, we shout it louder and that makes it stronger. No, it doesn't. It's the words that matter, not the volume that you express them with. And let me make a side note here. If you feel like you have to type in all caps in all your social media posts, you've got an issue with the substance of your social media posts. Stop yelling at me on Facebook, okay? 
That's what all caps means. And you know what? You can use levels. You can use volume. You can use volume in your, your, your written communication to communicate something that's important. Oftentimes when I... Uh, uh, especially with all this COVID stuff. I had a lot of communication, especially the first couple months coming from the pastor out to the church. And if there was something that I wanted to emphasize to make sure that you got in the three paragraphs I'd send out, I would highlight a phrase uh, by making it bold or italicizing it uh, or capitalizing it and so that you would draw your attention to that. Well, if you, if you use that sparingly, it has meaning. But if I put everything in all caps, it loses its meaning. And so you temper your speech by stopping, by quitting yelling, by not yelling. Fourth, uh, and this one is extremely important, you, when we say that we're going to do something, you have to follow through with your commitment. If you tell me that you want to meet me at such and such a time, at such and such a place, I expect you to be there. And when we don't keep our commitments our words lose their meaning. If you tell me time and time again that you're gonna be at such and such a place or you're gonna do something and you don't do it, then I no longer am gonna trust you. I'm not gonna believe your words. If we as Christians don't fulfill our commitments and do what it is God's called us to do or what we've promised that we're gonna do, then the world's not gonna believe what we say God says. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't ever make a mistake. Here's one of the things that I've learned. As I've gotten older, if I make an appointment with you, I'm going to put it on my phone or on my calendar because otherwise I'll get busy and I might forget. And so, you know, sometimes somebody will come up to me after a church service. It's busy out there and, and uh, they'll say, hey, pastor, can I meet with you this week? Yeah, when do you want to meet? Well, I don't know. And, and maybe they'll say, well, let's, let's just set it on Tuesday at 10 o'clock. I'll look at them and say, would you please email me or text me that because I'm real busy right now, and, and it's important for me to keep that appointment. So send it to me, and I'll put it on my calendar. Because it's, it, if it is important enough to make that commitment, it is important to keep your commitment. If we don't keep our commitments, don't keep our promises, our words lose their meaning. And then fourth, this is akin to the last one, but it's a little bit different. We just have to tell the truth. We have to be truth tellers. Because if we fudge, if we bend the truth a little bit, if we outright lie, our words lose their meaning. As a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, our yes should mean yes, and our no should mean no. If not, we bear false witness. And when we lie, it brings our character into question. And as a Christian, it brings God's character into question. And so ultimately, uh, we lose, our words lose their meaning when you don't speak truth. And so the first thing that I want you to see from this text, when James says, don't swear by heaven or earth, don't, don't make these huge hyperbolic statements. Don't, don't, you don't have to pinky swear on everything. You don't have to promise that I promise that I promise. You should be able to say, I'm going to do something and you're going to keep your word because your words mean things. So temper your speech. Be careful in how you use your language because if you don't, it goes directly to your integrity. People will 
will, will apply what you say, whether or not you live up to what you say and how you communicate will be directly applied to how people see you as a person and see me as a person and whether or not we have integrity. There's another issue of integrity that I want to talk about that, that really comes out of that last phrase of this passage, that you don't fall under the judgment or you don't fall into hypocrisy. <clears throat> and that's this idea of, of being who we are and walking in that person that God's called us to be. Now, there's an issue that we struggle with as Christians because we, we know that out of humility, we, we understand that without Christ, we're just a mess. You know, without Jesus, we're sinners that are condemned to die. Without Christ, we don't have hope of eternal life. Without Christ, the scripture says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But in Christ, we're different than that. And what happens is when we don't have clarity on that, we get those two mixed up. So what I want you to hear first, and I'll probably say this again when I get to the end of this, is don't think too highly of yourself, but never think too little of Christ who is in you. You hear that? Don't think too highly of yourself and who you are, but don't think too little of who Christ is when he is in you and he's transformed you. So what I mean by that is, is if we're going to live a life of integrity, we're going to confess, we're going to understand who we are without Christ, okay? Without Christ, I'm a sinner. Scripture says so. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 3.10 is a quote from Old Testament passage that says, for, uh, it says, there are none righteous, no, not one. That means that I'm not righteous and you're not righteous. Not a single one of us are righteous. In our flesh, we are sinful beings. We are sinners. When we, we lie, we cheat, uh, we, we are materialistic, we're greedy, we're gossips, we'll talk bad about other people. In ourselves, without Christ, we are sinful beings. We need to understand that. And we need to be willing to confess that, 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 Dennis, in my flesh, I'm a sinner. And I don't need to, need to have any embarrassment about that because that's what God's word says. But we, we, or I, I'll just put it back on me, without Christ, I'm a slave to this world. Scripture says that if I sin, then I become a slave to sin. Romans 6, 16 says that, uh, uh, do you not know that if you offer yourselves to someone as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one that you obey, either sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. So I'm a slave to this world. If, without Christ, I can't do any better. Without Christ, I'm a sinner. You know, one of the things that, that has just become so apparent to me in recent months and, and years, in fact, the last couple of decades in a, in a real way, is that we, we grew up in a culture that was kind of a Christian culture. You know, in the 50s and 60s, my, my parents were coming out of this Judeo-Christian uh, culture that had that mindset. You know, we had blue laws in Texas where you couldn't, there were a whole bunch of stuff you couldn't buy on Sundays. Uh, when I was a kid, you couldn't hardly buy anything on Sunday, except for a few essentials. And, and, and that's because our culture had that, that's that ethos, that, that sense of what was right and wrong, where our culture no longer has that. And so one of the things that I've just become really aware of is that, you know what? People that don't have Jesus act like sinners. And how else should I expect them to act? If somebody is, is 
walking on the streets of, of Seattle and they're cussing out a police officer because they don't have Christ, how else should I expect them to act? If you don't have Christ, if you don't have that, that foundation for righteousness to walk in a relationship with him, you're going to act out who you are. And so I shouldn't expect any different. And ultimately, Scripture says that those who sin are slaves to sin. Now, there's good news when we get on the other side of this, but we need to understand who we are without Christ and be willing to confess that. Confess who I am without Christ. I'm a man without hope. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. <laughs> Without Christ, if I take my last breath on this earth, I'm gonna end up separated from God for eternity in hell. I'm, a, I'm without hope, without Christ. And without Christ, I, if I die, I will die in my sin because Christ is the only name under heaven by which a man might be saved. It is only through Jesus that we have access to a relationship to the Father. So the bottom line is if we're gonna be people of integrity, we need to understand who we are without Christ. And we need to be willing to confess that and accept that and own that. But we also need to understand that once we enter into a relationship with Christ, our life changes. We've been transformed. And so as you walk through that, the scripture teaches us that, that we're forgiven. In Christ, my sins are forgiven. So I need to be willing not only to confess who I am without Christ, but to profess who I am in Christ. I need to be able to, to, to profess or be willing to profess that in Christ, I'm, I'm forgiven of my sins. I no longer bear the weight of those sins. I no longer am gonna be held accountable for eternity for my sins. I'm redeemed in Christ. He has purchased me. Christ shed his blood so that I, I can become one of his. And he has paid the price, the penalty for my sin so that I've been redeemed by God. And so with Christ or in Christ, I'm forgiven and I'm redeemed. In Christ, I have a new life. In fact, scripture teaches us that, that we are born again. We, we have new life that's been granted us. We have a new heart that's been implanted inside of us. So if I have put my faith and trust in Christ and have a relationship with him, I, I, am, I now have a new life. I need to be willing to profess that I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I have a new life. I need to be willing to profess that I'm free from sin. We saw that in Romans chapter six. If you're a slave to sin, if, if, you're, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. But once you've been set free by Christ, you're a slave to righteousness. Jesus in, in John chapter eight, which I'm really excited about, after we finish the James study, we're gonna, here in a couple weeks, we're gonna start walking through the gospel of John. When we get to John chapter eight, Jesus talks about how we can be set free from our sin. And he says, once you're set free by me, you're free indeed. And so we no longer are constrained and controlled by our sin. If you're, a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you put your faith in him. The spirit of the living God has come to dwell within you. You don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to continue to walk in a sinful lifestyle. So your life truly ought to look differently. See, this is where this, this issue of hypocrisy comes in. Because what will happen is the world will look at Christians who are trying to act like Christians and say, well, I know that they're not perfect. They're just hypocrites. No, they're not. A Christian who goes out and lives purposely and gives in to sin is a hypocrite because you're acting like someone you're not. If you're walking in a relationship with Christ and you're seeking to live a righteous life, 
you're the opposite of a hypocrite. You're living in integrity. You're seeking to live the life out of who you really are. If you've been set free from your sin and you're doing your very best to walk in freedom from sin, then you're living a life of integrity, not of hypocrisy. It's just the opposite. And so as a Christian, we need to understand who we are. We've been set free by the power of God. We don't have to live in sin anymore. And if we'll understand that and we'll walk in that freedom, we'll live out the life that God's called us to. Dr. Frankie Rainey used an illustration, and I know some of you have heard this before, but it sticks with me every time I come across this idea. Dr. Rainey was a, my Greek professor at Howard Payne, was kind of my pastor for several years while I was going to school. And he, uh, he tells a story, if he was preaching on this thought on a Sunday morning, he decided to, to survey his congregation. And so at the beginning of the, the, the message, he asked him, how many of y'all sinned today? Well, every hand in the congregation went up, including his wife's. So he just tucked that away in the back of his head and uh, they got in the car and on the way home from church, he looked over at Sue and said, Sue, what'd you do this morning? She said, what do you mean? He said, well, when I asked, uh, you know, how many people in the congregation sinned today, you raised your hand, so obviously you sinned. What'd you do? She said, well, I don't know. I just, I had to have sinned because we all sin every day. And so where does scripture say that? It doesn't. And he said, I, I want to challenge you. I want you to go home and, and seek the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any sinful action or sinful thought that was in your heart. And when he reveals that, certainly confess it, ask for forgiveness for it, but ask the Lord. Well, she eventually came back and told, told her husband, you know, the Lord revealed to me something like three or four days before that she had done that was sinful that she'd done against the Lord. And, and so... He made the point that as Christians, if we walk in a relationship with Christ, it ought to be normal for us to not live in sin. It doesn't mean that we're not going to fail, and it doesn't mean that we go around in bragging because we're no longer sinners, because the only reason that we don't continually live in sin is because of Christ and his power and what he's done in us. It's not because of our goodness. And so in Christ, I have, been, I have a new life. In Christ, I've been set free from sin. In Christ, I am a child of God. I've been adopted into his family. Paul says, so I call out to him, Abba, Father, because I've been adopted by God the Father. We have been accepted into the family of God, so we're no longer an outcast. We're no longer separated from him. We're now a part of the family of God. We're part of a royal priesthood, a royal family. Act like it. A, a, a life of integrity is gonna act like who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us that the moment that we receive Christ as our personal Savior, when he comes into our lives, he transforms us and his spirit comes to dwell in us. Jesus said in John chapter 16, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He said, my spirit will be with you and will be in you. And then you see Paul flesh that out in his letters. That the spirit of the living God comes to dwell within his people and empower us to fulfill the purposes and the plans of God. And so in Christ, I am filled with his spirit. In Christ, I also have an eternal future. I have an eternal home. I have something to look forward to. You know, that's why COVID doesn't scare me that much. <laughs> if it gets me, it gets me. I go home to see Jesus, right? I don't have a death wish. 
but I'm not going to live life in fear because I don't have to. There's going to come a day when I take my last breath on this earth. And that's okay with me because when I take my last breath here, I'm going to wake up in his presence because I have an eternal future that wasn't, didn't come to me because I was a good person or because I tried real hard or any of that. My only hope of eternity, my hope of a future is because of who I am in Christ. And so as we learn to walk in integrity and our words have meaning, we clarify this truth. I profess who I am, Dennis Hester, in my own sinful flesh. I'm willing to, I'm willing to confess that I'm a sinner. I'm willing to confess that I'm needy. I'm willing to confess that I'm a train wreck. I'm willing to confess what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, that in me there is nothing adequate for good works. But with Christ in me, once Christ has transformed my heart and is changing me, with Christ, in a relationship with Christ, I am a new person. I've been transformed by his power. I'm set free from sin. I'm filled with his spirit and I have a new hope and a new home. And we can't confuse those two because if we, if we confuse who we are in and of ourselves and who we are in Christ, that's when our lives are, are not lived out in integrity. And so Paul, when he writes in, in, in to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter three, he, he, he says, you know what? You take all of my good deeds all of the good that is me, the good things about my personality, all of my good traits, all of my good deeds, and you take all of my righteousness, all of my righteousness, and you put it over here in a big old pile and compare it to what I am in Christ, it's like a big stinking pile of dung. Paul says that's what his good stuff looks like in comparison to Christ's righteousness. You know, in fact, the word that's translated dung in some of our English versions, it also means like corpses rotting on the battlefield being maggot eaten. Now I know that that sounds gross, but Paul says that the goodness that is in me, all of my good qualities and all of my good characteristics compared to the righteousness that is Christ stinks. It's not even, you can't just say that it's not good stuff, it's a negative. It weighs, even my goodness weighs against me. And so we need to be willing to confess who we are without Christ, but then understand that in Christ, we have been credited with his righteousness. By the shed blood of Jesus, we have, we have been cleansed of our sins. We've been set free from sin. We've been made a part of a new family. We've been brought into a royal family, the family of God, and we've received an eternal destiny all of that in Christ. So if we're gonna be people of integrity, we're, we're both gonna clearly understand and speak about who we are without Christ, but also who we are in Christ. And one of the reasons that this is so crucially, uh, so important, is this, this truth that who we believe we are is often how we begin to act. Now teachers understand this, most parents understand this. Sociologists and psychologists have, have studied this for years. If you take a child as a young child and you tell them over and over and over that they're worthless, that they can't accomplish anything, that they can't fulfill any dreams, that they can't do anything, ultimately, that's how they're gonna begin to act. They're gonna begin to act worthless. But if you'll take that same child or their sibling and you'll tell them, how, how beautiful they are, how lovely they are, how intelligent they are, how much they can accomplish if they just try. 
you'll see them give it their very best and try. Now, I'm not just talking about positive thinking here, but I'm talking about accepting the truth. If we as born-again believers in Jesus Christ understand that we no longer have to live in sin, in fact, we don't have an excuse for it because we have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have a, a, a conscience that's been made alive, a spirit that's been renewed, a new heart and a new life, and God has offered us a new future. If we understand that and put our faith in that and, and walk in that, we'll begin to act like that. So if we're gonna live a life of integrity, we're gonna understand who we are without Christ, profess who we are with Christ, and we're gonna walk in who we are today and not use our struggles and our flesh as an excuse to sin. And far too often in counseling, and Kevin and I had this discussion this week, we see people who just say, well, you know, pastor, I just can't do any better because I've got this struggle and that's just who I am. I I was joking with Susan about this yesterday. Some people, I, I, I hear this often. Well, I'm just not a patient person. Bull. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. You don't have any excuse, okay? If, you've got, if you're walking in a relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit should fill you and you'll have patience. Don't tell me I'm not a loving person so I don't have to love. No. In Christ, you've been given a new heart. The Holy Spirit dwells within you and the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so if you're walking in a relationship with Christ, love and peace and patience will come out of your soul. You'll express that. And so what you're telling me is you're just using that as an excuse not to be the person God has made you to be. That's hypocrisy. That's not walking in integrity. And so as James speaks to us about our words, we need to understand First, how we use our words, but second, how they impact how we live out our life. So let me, let me offer three things today. First one is this. Many of us struggle with tempering our language. Probably every one of us in here could identify with one of those first five subpoints. There's times when our language is not appropriate and we need to temper our foul language. There's times when we overuse hyperbole. We use hyperbole all the time, right? I had somebody come up to me after the service today and say, Pastor, that's the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. No, it's not. (laughs) Of course, he was joking with me. But we need to temper our words so that we don't overuse hyperbole. We need to stop shouting at people when we don't have substance. We need to follow through with our commitments. If you say you're gonna do something, do it. You know, parents sometimes can be the worst at losing their kids here. If we don't do what we tell our kids we're gonna do, our kids are gonna remember it and they're gonna see it. We need to follow through and we need to speak the truth and hold on to the truth. God's word requires that we hold on to truth. So if you're struggling with that area of tempering your speech, just letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Ask the Holy Spirit to deal with you and to strengthen you. And I told the first group earlier, um, my prayer is that at some point over this next week, a couple of you in here are gonna look at your spouse and you're gonna say, I told you that a thousand. Oh, preacher told me not to say that anymore. And you'll remember 
that, that truth. I think that all of us can, deal, can, can grow in that area. Tempering our speech, because when we temper our speech, our words will mean more. They'll gain meaning. And then second, if you have never put your faith in Christ as your personal Savior, and, and this is for everyone in here and those that are, that are watching online, if you don't know for sure that, that you have entered into that eternal relationship with him, if you were to die today, you don't know for sure that you'd wake up in heaven. I encourage you, in fact, I implore you to, to seek the Lord in that. Find someone who can help you come into a relationship with Christ. Open God's word. Begin to read the gospel of John and, and ask the Lord to reveal himself to you so that you can come into a relationship with him. Reach out to, to Kevin or I uh, or one, one of our deacons here. But if you don't know for sure, if you were to die today, that you have a surety of eternal life, you need to deal with that. Confess who you are. Understand that you're a sinner. Without Christ, you're destined for, for eternal separation from God. And then third, Christians, if you know Christ as your Savior, act like it. Live a life of integrity. Be who it is that Scripture says you are. Don't use an excuse of some weakness from your past or some bad habit that, that seems to chase after you from, from your flesh because you've been set free from that. If you're going to live a life of integrity as a believer, you need to stand up and act like the child of God that you are. And, and if you're unwilling to do that, that's when you're acting like a hypocrite. That's when you've fallen into hypocrisy. You're not being who Scripture says you are. And so as a believer, I want to challenge you today to profess who you are in Christ, be reminded of who you are in Christ, and then live that life of, of a Christ follower.